0: This is the third Sunday of Lent, and if you've been journeying with us, what we've done each week, we normally spend a lot of time in worship and song up at the front of the service, but Lent is a time where we allow the, the cross to shake us up, to disorient us, if you will. Uh, so, so easily in life, we kind of go through our normal rhythms, and we find ourselves sort of naturally, there's this gravitational pull that pulls us to live in orbit around ourselves, Maybe Is it just me or do you experience that too? And so the church calendar, the church devised a way to mark time that doesn't just revolve around our events or our activities or our holidays or our vacations or our seasons of the year. The church said, what if we mark time around the life of Christ and that will pull us out of the gravitational pull of self and teach us to orbit around Christ. Christ. And so that's the whole idea behind the church calendar. It's not a legalistic sort of thing. Really, it's a way that we can together, by the Spirit, by the grace of God, begin to center our lives on Christ. Amen? And so Lent, in particular, is a time where the cross and the shock and the scandal and the horror of the cross, if you will, the God who came to die, that that is meant to shake us up. Lent is a time that we journey with Jesus all the way to the cross. And as we journey with Jesus to the cross, He calls us all along the way to repent. He calls us to take up our own cross and to follow Him, to come after Him. And so a lot of you are giving up something in Lent. Again, not because you're trying to be legalistic, not to impress God with your piety. He's not impressed. But the reason we do it, He just told me that. No, I'm just kidding. The, the reason we do it is as a way of saying, God, I want to journey with you, so by, because your grace is at work in me, not so that your grace will be at work in me. See, that's legalism. But when you say, because your grace is at work in me, I want to lower myself. I want to turn from my selfishness. I want to let you shake me up, disorient me from my selfishness, and reorient me around the cross. So... One of the ways we used to do this when we were meeting on Sunday nights back at the New Life main campus is we would turn all the chairs around in the room and have everybody face it. Well, we can't quite do that here, but the high school was nice enough to build a set to disorient things for us. And No, they have a spring play coming up. But we thought we'd mess, we thought we'd, we'd mess with the service order a little bit and to shake it up. We're in a series during Lent called Conversations. Conversations with Jesus. See, a funny thing happens as you journey with Jesus to the cross. You know what happens? You see the people that He stops and talks with along the way. You see the people that He stops and pays attention to. And you know the uncomfortable truth is it's not often the people that we would stop and pay attention to. We sort of think, oh, I'm going to stop and I'm going to talk to the influencers and the leaders and I've got my strategy and all this thing. And Jesus, thank God, Jesus shows us a God who is so gracious, who is so merciful that He stops and He notices and He sees people that we wouldn't normally see. This morning our text is John 4, if you turn there with me, and we'll start in verse 4. Jesus had to go through Samaria. This isn't quite true. <laughs> Unless what John means is that Jesus had to because He was obeying the leading of the Lord. Because actually, most of the Jews traveled around Samaria. They would do everything they could to avoid it. But Jesus, John tells us, had to go through Samaria. And He came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, which means a city of drunkards, which was near the land Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. And Jesus was tired from His journey, so He sat down at the well, and it was about noon And a Samaritan woman came to the well to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me something, give me some water to drink. And his disciples had gone into the city to buy some food. But the Samaritan woman asked, why do you, a Jewish man, ask for something to drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews and Samaritans didn't associate with each other. Stop for a moment right there and let's ask ourselves a few things about the backdrop of this story. There are clues, there are cues that John, as a good storyteller, is giving his readers, but there are cues that you and I, because we've been a couple thousand years removed from this, and we're geographically removed from this, and we're culturally removed from this, you and I may sort of say, what's the big deal? Jewish man, Samaritan, Roman, like, you know, is this like segregation, but first century version? Far worse. Who were the Samaritans? If you go all the way back, King David had a son named Solomon. Solomon was was pretty disobedient. He he took for himself all kinds of other wives. And so God said to Solomon, said, look, out of respect to your father, I won't rip the kingdom from you during your lifetime. But the next man up, he's going to see it. And sure enough, Rehoboam inherits the kingdom, but he he makes a couple of bad leadership decisions. That would make a wonderful sermon some other time. And so this, this military exile guy named Jeroboam says, you know what? I don't like what that Rehoboam guy is doing. I'm going to split this. And so the 12 tribes of Israel are divided in half. And you have the southern part keeps two tribes. They're in the land that's called Judah. And the up north guys keep 10 tribes roughly. And they retain the name Israel. But guess what city is down in the southern part? Jerusalem. And what's in Jerusalem? The temple. And where is everybody supposed to worship at least once a year? Jerusalem. And so this king, Jeroboam, makes a tactical political maneuver. He says, okay, look, look, if I have all of my people going down into Jerusalem to worship, they're going to, over the years, believe that they are inferior to less than the people of Judah because they've got the temple and we don't. And so Jeroboam says, we're going to do our own thing. We're not just going to have one temple, we're going to have two. And he builds two places of worship in Dan and in Bethel. But here's the trick. You know what he sets up as images of God in these places of worship? Golden calves. Gee, where have we seen that before? This goes all the way back to Exodus, doesn't it? So right from the start, the sin of the northern kingdom is a sin of false worship. This region began to be called Samaria, and if that were all they had done, that would have been bad enough. Because if you've read First Kings or Second Kings, all the other kings of Israel of that northern kingdom are compared against Jeroboam, the very first king. It's, they'll say something like, This king was bad, but not as bad as Jeroboam, who taught Israel to worship other gods. Ooh, never, it, it, it was on his legacy forever. Okay? Now, if that were all he had done, that would have been enough to hate Samaritans. But what happens is in 722 BC, Assyria comes and takes this northern kingdom of Israel, takes them captive, except that Assyrians weren't that nice. So, they didn't really keep them captive as much as they did scatter them and force them to intermarry with, so that their race would totally disappear. The ten lost tribes of Israel. But the people they left behind in Samaria, in this northern region of Israel, were all the ones who were sick and lame and not good enough, if you will, to be taken away. And the Assyrians were famous for bringing in other people that they had captured and conquered and forcing them to repopulate a new region. Why? What were they trying to do? They were trying to eradicate a race. And so all of a sudden, the people that begin to populate this northern region are intermingled half-breeds, and I I don't mean to say this in a negative way, but you have to understand, for the Jewish people who believed that their calling was dependent on their race, this was everything. Everything. This was the loss of everything. So fast forward to the first century, all of a sudden you get Samaritans, and these are people who have a long history of false worship to a false god. Who knows if they have any Jewish blood left in them. And they're the lowlifes, the half-breeds, this is the despised, this is why Jewish people would call Samaritans dogs. I mean, you talk about racism at its worst. This is what is going on. But this woman is not just a Samaritan, she's a woman. And that meant something quite different in the first century than it does today. Because a woman in the first century was at an extreme disadvantage. Josephus, a first century Jewish historian, said that the law holds women to be inferior in all matters. Therefore, women should be submissive. Sirach, a book that was written around 180 BC, 180 years or so before the time of Christ, said, better is the wickedness of a man than a woman who does good. Thank you, you're awake. (laughs) One of the rabbinic traditions recorded that there were three prayers that a Jewish man would would pray every day, and one of these prayers was a prayer where he would say, Thank you, God, for not making me a woman. Women in the first century were pretty much the equivalent of property. They had no rights. They couldn't make decisions for themselves. And so we're about to hear the story of a woman who later, and those of you who know the story, you're already ahead of me and you're thinking, this is a woman who's been married five times. Now, if you've grown up in church and, and you're like me, you've maybe heard this story and thought, ooh, what a floozy. Married five times. When the truth is, she'd been rejected five times because a woman didn't have the power to divorce. Only a man did. And so here is a woman who's been trapped and rejected and cast aside over and over and over again. In fact, probably the reason she came to draw water at noon was because no one else was around at noon. Genesis, when it tells another well water drawing story, Says, Rebecca came, it says, Rebecca or Rachel came out in the evening, which was when the women came to get water. When? In the evening. That makes sense. You have to understand a culture that doesn't really like the heat and the sun. I know, Americans, you guys are, are interesting, you know. I, I, I can say you guys only in this sense. I'm an American too, but I, I, I've never been afraid of this. Uh, uh, or anyway, okay. So... <laughs> So here's the thing. I've never been eager to get out in the sun and like sort of lay out. This was, a, this was a fun thing when Holly and I would first take beach vacations together. I grew up in a home that my mom always had an umbrella for the sun so that she wouldn't get, you know, anyway. That, that's a little bit like what the culture is in the East. It's let's get out of the heat of the day, not let's lay out with oil, you know. And uh, <laughs> So anyway, but here's this woman coming at noon. Which maybe says she's hoping not to run into anybody. This is a story about the lowest person in the worst town of the most hated region going through the toughest time of her life. This is a story about the lowest person in the worst town, Sychar, means drunkards, of the most hated region going through the toughest time of her life. That's what this story is about. And yet Jesus is restoring her dignity. Jesus is restoring her dignity. We'll make three observations from this story before bringing it home to us. Just by talking to her. Why are you, a Jewish man, talking to me, a Samaritan woman? Like, this isn't supposed to be the way it works. You're up here in the social stratus. I'm down here. Why are you talking to me? Jesus, it it may not seem like much for Him to say, Woman, would you please give me some water to drink? But even in addressing her, He dignifies her. He sees her. He recognizes that she exists. That she's there. The story goes on in verse 10, and Jesus responded, if you recognize God's gift and who is saying to you, give me some water to drink, you would be asking Him for some living water. And the woman said, Sir, you don't have a bucket, and the well is deep. You're not going to use your hand here. Where would you get this living water? Now, living water is an idiom for running water, a stream, a fountain, a wellspring, sort of the thing that was always moving, water that's moving. And she's thinking, just so you know, number one, this well is pretty deep. Maybe you haven't realized, but this isn't like springing up water. This is like pooled water. You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave this well to us. And he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Stop for a minute. She mentions that this is Jacob's well. Do you know why that's interesting? Because there's a theme, there's a motif in Jewish storytelling about wells and women. Do you know it? It begins with Abraham looking for a wife for his son Isaac. You remember back in Genesis, God had spoken to Abraham says I'm going to use your family to bless all the families of the earth. And he says, I don't even have a son. I'm like 90. And God says, I'm going to give you a son. And Abraham's like, don't tell my wife that. And they have a son and his name is Isaac and he's getting older, but they don't live near the rest of their family. And again, this is back in the day where keeping it in the family mattered. A little bit like in Downton Abbey where they're trying to find the heir that's in the family. But this is much more so. And so, and so Abraham gets... Now, now I've lost you. <laughs> a, a, Abraham, get, Abraham sends his servant and he says, Okay, look, you got to go find a woman from our family for my son Isaac. And it's Abraham that goes... Oh, Abraham's servant that goes and sees a young woman at the well. And do you know what he says to her? He says, Can I have a drink? The very same phrase. And the woman says, I'll give you a drink. But not only you, but all your livestock with you. And it's at that moment that Abraham's servant knows, this is the one, a woman who can anticipate needs. This is the one. And he brings her back. And it's Rebecca. And so Rebecca comes back. And then you fast forward a few more years. Isaac and Rebecca now have their own sons. They have sons, Jacob and Esau. And you remember this when Jacob tricks Esau out of the birthright. It's Rebecca who says, Jacob, you better get out of Dodge, son. And while you're out there, would you go find a wife for yourself, boy? A woman who would civilize you and help you grow? And he says, go. And she says, go. Go back to your father's country. Again, same idea. And Jacob is at a well. And he sees a woman there and he asks her for a drink. And then in this epic rom-com or epic, I don't know, movie moment, she gets him a drink. He kisses her and starts weeping. Like, oh, good Lord, you know, like some kiss. No, I think the idea here is destiny had just begun. See, wells and women. Wells were the scene when a woman's destiny was rescued, was the trajectory was altered. A well was where a woman came to sort of help, and all of a sudden there was a servant from Abraham, the chosen family. If you will, wells are where good good men found worthy women to join them in God's story. To take their place in God's story. Wells are where good men find worthy women to take their place in God's story. This is sort of the motif. You might also say that wells were where dreams come true and where destinies are changed. Wells were where it all happened. Now, if you're a literature person and you understand there's certain scenes, there's certain themes that happen with certain scenes, then when another storyteller starts to tell the scene, you're going to say to yourself, I know what's coming. I've read this book before. I know what's going to happen here. But you're wrong. Because John's setting us up. But this woman at this well is hardly a worthy woman. This woman at this well is not offering Jesus for a drink, is not saying, well, who else can I get water for? And so G- verse 13, Jesus answered everyone who drinks this well. In fact, this woman is sort of ar- argumentative. Jesus is like, hey, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me, who are you? You think you're greater than Jacob? You know, and Jesus is like, woman, like, don't you know the script about women in wells? Like, You're supposed to be like, sweet and serving and submissive and then you'll find your mate this is a woman who spent her whole life knowing that she doesn't fit the bill and Jesus says to her everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again but whoever drinks from the water that I give will never be thirsty again the water that I give will become in those who drink it a spring of water that bubbles up into eternal life the woman said sir give me this water so that I'll never be thirsty and will never need to come back here to draw water You can almost hear the pain in her voice. Jesus, could you really give me something that would make it so I never have to go out in public again? This is pretty shameful. This is pretty lonely. This is pretty hard. And Jesus says, I see the pain in your life, but I want to get one step deeper. And he says, go and get your husband and come back here. Oh! She says, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, you're right to say I don't have a husband. Which maybe was the first time, by the way, that someone had told the woman that she was right about anything. (laughs) But then Jesus says, You've had five husbands and the man you're with now isn't your husband. You've spoken the truth. This is not the kind of worthy woman that Abraham's servant went to find for Isaac. This is not the kind of worthy woman that Jacob saw and began to weep. This is the kind of woman that you meet and you think, if you're listening to the story that John is telling, you're, you're thinking to yourself, Oh boy, she's not in the family. She's a Samaritan. Strike one. Strike two, she's been rejected by five men. Why? Strike two. And you go on and on, all of a sudden you're realizing this is a woman who's given up all hope for her life. This is a person who's just sort of thought, I don't know that anybody's going to love me enough to want to keep me around, so a girl's got to eat. I'll stay with this guy even though he won't marry me. This is a woman who's lost all hope, lost all worth, all dignity. And Jesus meets her at the well. Not only is Jesus restoring her dignity, but Jesus is rescuing her destiny. He's rescuing her destiny. This encounter is like the encounters of other good men with women at the well. And even though this woman doesn't fit the bill, doesn't fit the story, Jesus is saying, woman, I've got something better to offer you. And it's not just entrance into Abraham's family, but it's eternal life. It's a water that will never run dry. The woman goes on after Jesus has told her about her life, and she says, sir, I see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you and your people say that it's necessary to worship in Jerusalem. And Jesus said to her, Believe me, woman, the time is coming when you and your people will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Stop for a moment. I've heard so many preachers say that this woman started to squirm when Jesus talked about her husbands and her life. And so this woman started to squirm and, and said, try to change the subject with a theological question. Can I tell you that I don't think that's what's going on here. I think what's going on here is a woman desperate to get something right in her life for once. She hasn't had the power to make her marriages go right. She's had men reject her and cast her off five times. And now that she sees a man of God, she just wants to know okay, can I at least get the worship thing right? What defines my identity, Jesus? Is it the mountain here or Jerusalem there? Which is it? Do I belong in Samaria or do I belong in Jerusalem? Tell me where I belong. Tell me who I am. And Jesus says, it's not there, nor is it here. He says, the time is coming. The Father is seeking worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And the woman said, I know that Messiah is coming the one who is called the Christ. And when He comes, He will teach everything to us. In other words, I want some of that truth. And Jesus said to her, I am the one who speaks with you. If you've read the Gospels, even just a quick reading of the Gospels, you'd recognize that Jesus was always very furtive, secretive about His identity. He would frequently say to her, Don't say who I am. And when people in power would ask him, Hey, are you this? Even Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? And what did Jesus reply? It's as you say, if you say so. But here with a woman who's on the fringe of society, here with a woman who's been on the outs, who's been pushed out, kept out, pushed down, beat down, beat up, here to her Jesus says, I am he. No hiding. No hiding. No playing games. No making it hard. I am he. I'm the one. Jesus was restoring her dignity. Jesus was rescuing her destiny. Jesus was recentering her identity. Recentering her identity. When I was I grew up in Malaysia. When I was 10 years old, my family moved from Malaysia to Portland, Oregon. We lived there for 3 years and then we moved back to Malaysia. Now, if there's anything that's hard enough for a middle school student to do, it's <laughs> figure out where you belong. And it's hard enough without having to sort of switch cultures to go r- r- around the world. And God's grace, thankfully, w- w- was on our family and on our lives. And, and yet there were many moments where I sort of thought, am I American or am I Malaysian or what am I? And, and even from the accent, I think I've told the story in here of how I had a sixth grade teacher make me stand up so that the whole class could hear that I didn't roll my R's. I said airplane instead of airplane. If only I'd known the British accent would be so hip, I wouldn't have lost it. Lord Grantham. (laughs) And there's something about not knowing where you belong. And this woman is wanting Jesus to say, Jesus, who am I? Do I belong in Samaria? Do I belong in Jerusalem? Where is my identity? And he says, woman, I am he. It's me. It's not that mountain. It's not this mountain. I am the one. I am the one. Verse 27, just then Jesus' disciples arrived and were shocked that he was talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? or Why are you talking with her? They were too scared to do that. And the woman put down her water jar and went into the city and she said to the people, come and see a man who's told me everything I've done. Could this man be the Christ? It's interesting that a woman who was so ashamed of her life, she came out at a time of day where she wouldn't have to run into anybody. So ashamed of herself. And yet after a conversation with Jesus, she goes back into town and says, come and see a man who's told me everything I've done. Like, wait, hey, are you sure? I mean, are you sure you want all of this out there? I mean, is this the big like Oprah expose, you know, like the big tell? Are you sure you want to do? No, it's fine because it's not who I am anymore. Yeah, it's a man who will tell you everything I've done, but it's no longer who I am. What I've done is no longer who I am. Isn't that the freeing thing about what Jesus does to us? that all the most shameful things that you've done are no longer who you are. say, Glenn, that's cute, but isn't that just church speak? I mean, isn't that just a nice way of saying that Jesus is the one we've been waiting for and Jesus is the fountain of living water? Like, that's cute, but isn't that a bit Sunday school? I mean, how is it that you know? Is there any substance to the claim that Jesus is the fountain of living water? You know how we can say that with such confidence? It's because of this cross that we see every week. It's because of this communion table that we're about to come to in just a moment. Because Isaiah says, He was despised and rejected by men. See, the substance to the claim that Jesus is the fountain of living water is that Jesus came and stood and became everything that this woman was. She was despised and rejected by men five times over. But Isaiah said, no, Jesus came and was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. Do you think men were hiding their faces from this woman? Certainly she was hiding her face from them. And we esteemed him not. Surely He. Why did Jesus do this? So is it that Jesus just comes and identifies and says, Hey, me too. Nobody liked me either. Misery loves company. Let's all get together and call ourselves Christians. You've been rejected. I've been rejected. Is that what it was? No. It wasn't that Jesus has also been rejected. It's that Jesus was rejected with our rejection. Jesus took on Himself the sorrow that was ours. The prophet says it this way, Because Jesus was despised, you and I can be blessed. Because Jesus was rejected, you and I can become the chosen. That's the beauty of the Gospel. Not that because you've been good enough and then all of a sudden you've behaved well enough and because you've got a good enough record and because you sort of fit the bill and because you sort of fit the mold and you would have been the person that would have been chosen. No. No. But it's because Jesus came and was rejected with our rejection. took on Himself our griefs and our sorrows and our pain. I want you this morning to have a fresh glimpse of Jesus, of the cross. As we journey with Jesus to the cross in Lent. There are three questions I want to leave us with. The first is this. Will you come to Jesus as the fountain of living water? Will you come to Jesus as the fountain of living water? Will you say, you know what? The essence of sin is putting man where God should be. But the essence of salvation is God putting Himself where only humans should be. But how often do we say, well, there's something I've been looking for, something I've been hoping for, something I've been waiting for. second question is quite like it. Will you put down your water jar? Every week, the communion table is the high point of our service. And if you're new to New Life Downtown, I want to explain that this is unashamedly the centerpiece of our worship gathering. It's not the singing, it's not the sermon, it's the sacraments of the Lord's table because it is here that we come with empty hands. In a moment, we're about to say our confession and sing it. That's a way of putting down our water jars. If you think poetically with me this morning, let a water jar represent all that this world can offer. Everything that you've been drinking from. And this woman sets it down, puts down her water jar and runs into town. I was planning on referencing the song before seeing you here this morning, Don, but Don co-wrote the song back in the 90s and it was a huge song for me in my teenage years. The line says, earthly things have left me dry. Only you can satisfy. All I want is more of you. That's the phrase that we have when we set down our water jars. Say, God, I've got these things I've been clinging to. It's my status. It's my good behavior, it's my whatever, it's my reputation, it's my... And maybe you've had some better water jars than this woman. Maybe you've had some pretty good water jars. And it's my accomplishments, and it's my this, or it's my family, or it's my children, or it's my parents, or it's my this, or it's my job, or it's my dreams, or it's my talent. And at the end of the day to say, this will never fill my thirst. Set down the water jar. And finally... Will you follow Jesus into Samaria? One of the reasons we started New Life Downtown is because I became convinced that we need the gathered gathered people of God to be in every part of the city, no doubt. But specifically in places where maybe others who follow Jesus would rather avoid to put it bluntly. There are lots of places that we'd rather avoid. Jews would make a long journey to go around Samaria and Jesus, John says, had to go through Samaria. I wonder if we don't see the people that we can help because we refuse to go into Samaria. We refuse to put ourselves in positions that are uncomfortable. I'm looking at some of you Young Life people who work at the Dale House. You put yourself in in positions where you can see and be around brokenness. And brokenness of all shapes and sizes. It happens in the burbs just as much as it happens anywhere else. But the point is, do we live, do we walk, do we go through life sort of saying, oh God, let me just keep me and my cute little life safe. I'd rather not go through there. The following Jesus is about walking through Samaria and saying, Who is it that's just like me crying out for living water? Who is it that's just like me, broken and despised and rejected and alone, that I can say, behold, come meet a man who told me everything I did because it doesn't define me anymore. I can freely confess it. I can freely say it. I can freely admit it because you know what defines me now is the cross and the mercy and the grace of God. Amen? So would you take a moment this morning and Close your eyes and bow your heads. And just quietly where you are, begin to pray. Begin to confess. Begin to say, God, forgive me for taking the jars of this world and trying to fill myself with it. Forgive me for standing on the outside. Help me to believe that You are enough. Help me to believe that You are more than enough. Help me to believe the Gospel again. Help me to believe... That Jesus was despised so that I can be blessed. Jesus was rejected so that I can be chosen. Help me to believe it again. Just begin to pray right where you are.